Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Mark Bittman is both a legend and a major brand name in the world of cookbooks and writing about food. I mean, if you care about cooking at all, or even if you don't, actually, there's a pretty good chance that there's a Mark Bittman cookbook either in your kitchen or on a nearby bookshelf. And I think Mark's rare among the people who produce a lot of work about recipes because he also produces a lot of writing that's essentially a critique of how food is grown and produced, how we eat, how food is labeled. And his new book really bears down on these questions. We're actually re-airing an interview with Mark we did a while ago, so the book is not that new anymore. One of the things that it got me thinking was, when has there ever been a significant political figure in America who really tuned into the question of having a healthy food system? Yeah, I know Michelle Obama, but I mean somebody like running for office, somebody trying to serve in a place of power. Lots of things to talk about with Mark, as you will see. When the farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down, oh, the farmer is the man who feeds them all. If you'll only look and see, I think you will agree that the farmer is the man who feeds them all. Oh, the farmer is the man, the farmer is the man, lives on credit till the fall. Then they take him by the hand and they lead him from the land And the middleman's the one who gets it all When the lawyer hangs around and the butcher cuts a pound All right, that's Pete Seeger beginning to unpack some of the themes in the book written by our guest today. He's been with us before, Mark Bittman. Uh, You know him best probably either for the columns he wrote in the New York Times or for those massive books of recipes that are sitting not too far from where you're sitting right now, maybe in your bookshelf. And may be how you plan your dinner tonight. But he's also, for a really long time, dating back at least to the 90s, been somebody who writes a lot about how food is produced, why it's produced the way it's produced, who, who do we grow food for, uh, how does it get labeled and marketed, all those kinds of things. And all of those, plus Pete Seeger apparently, get poured into Mark Bittman's book, Animal, Vegetable, Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. So, Mark, welcome back. Great to be here, Colin. Great to talk to you again. It's yeah, it's been a while. Been, yes, it has been a while. We should say we've known each other for a really long time. I don't know. 80s. 80s. 90s, 80s, 80s. Wow. Okay. So I was trying to think of a way. The book The book is uh, very, very comprehensive. goes back to uh, our days as hunter-gatherers and takes us right up through COVID. Uh, so there's a, a, a lot to unpack there. I was trying to think of a way to get us started. And and. So let me know whether this is a way for you to maybe tease out some of the major themes of your book. I was thinking today that in my lifetime, there has never been a national political campaign like a, uh, that I can think of anyway, somebody running for president, for whom all of these issues, the production of food, soil erosion and, and runoff, diabetes, obesity, um, you know, all of these labeling, you know, Except for maybe Ralph Nader might be the only presidential candidate I can think of. We we tend not to have, when we're having major conversations about the future of our country, about the leadership of our country, about the direction we're going to take, we tend not to have conversations about something as essential as 
the food, how, the food we put in our mouths and our stomachs, how it's produced, uh, how it's labeled. Why is that? Why, why, why isn't that? A, I mean, instead, they all have to go to, you know, they have to talk about ethanol and eat corn dogs and order the right kind of cheesesteak. And there's this whole sort of kabuki about eating, but it's not the stuff that you're writing about. Why, why doesn't that conversation take place in public? I mean, is it just too fundamental? Is it like saying, let's have a conversation about justice or let's have a conversation about labor or let's have a conversation about race, which we do have those conversations, but we never have them. We have not had them officially on a national level. No one on a national level has ever said, what's food for? How should we use food or how should we produce food or what's the right way to do it? And I think, I mean, the answer is, because that's not the way to do it profitably. When things started to happen nationally, there was a tremendous amount of pressure, both from business and from government, who sort of teamed up to say, let's try to figure out how to do this so that we can produce the most food possible and become uh, not only make money, but become powerful because we're such a great trading partner. And that was kind of the 19th century deal. And a lot has grown out of that, and we've never backed off and said, what's the purpose of a food system? Right, and um, there's a point in your book where uh, it's after there's been kind of a, a national conversation about cereal and cereal ingredients, uh, I think in the 1980s, and, and you describe, and so the FTC gets involved, uh, but you describe Reagan as having appointed an FTC chairman who, in the words of the previous chairman, gave the FTC a lobotomy on this subject. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you could say a little bit more about this. In other words, you know, one of the reasons we don't have the conversation is there are a lot of very well-heeled companies with well-heeled lobbyists who get a kind of access and, and who are apoplectic, uh, to use, a, I think, another term <laughs> used at another point, when something like this becomes a national conversation. I mean, the 70s, the, the last time we had these kinds of big conversations was the 60s and 70s. And it was because of a bunch of people who were seen as kooks, organic people back to the landers, black people who went back to the South and started collectives and cooperatives, all these sort of outliers showed the way. And then people started showing up and saying, well, wait, should breakfast cereal really be dessert? Is that the way things should happen. And this got the attention of there was a, a McGovern Senate subcommittee on nutrition, and it became bigger than it was intended to and started really asking hard questions about food and, and nutrition. And, um, and yes, then the FTC got involved. And that's when we saw the little bit of regulation that we have about marketing junk food to children. It's really, really a little tiny bit, but it was accelerating until Reagan became elected. And then the FTC was kneecapped in that regard. And we really have not seen progress in that since. No, I actually had a serious conversation within my family. At least everybody was purporting to be serious uh, about Fruit Loops. First of all, my, my suggestion would be any food that has the word fruit in it, but it's spelled with two O's, you, right away, your right. eyebrows should go up. But um, <laughs> Got it. But 
But they were saying to me, no, it's a, it says on the box, it's a whole grain product. Or it's a the whole grain in it, and it's a multi grain cereal, and and it does. It says that stuff on the box. Now we know that yes, I these hope are, it was a six year old that was yeah. arguing with you. I'm not, not going to say. I'm not going to six year old. Or... I'm not going to say who it was, <laughs> uh, just for pacification purposes. Right, um, I but, understand. But I mean, the stuff that they are allowed to say. I mean, you look at the box. I mean, obviously, sugar is the biggest ingredient in Fruit Loops, but. One would be forgiven if one trusts packaging and labeling for looking at the box and going, well, I guess it is a multi-grain cereal. Well, this has been a struggle. This is mostly the FDA's purview, and this has been a struggle for decades and decades that they food is deconstructed, it's stripped of everything, and then some things are put back in it to make it sound better. So there are nutrients or fortification or fiber or whatever it is that is the flavor of the month nutrition wise can be injected into otherwise useless foods um, or whatever it is that's the the problem of the month can be taken out of, of otherwise still still nutritionally almost useless foods. So um, the, the labeling is usually well-intentioned, but, but as so many other things in this country, it winds up being a compromise, and the compromise almost always favors business. Yeah, once in a while, they don't win. I, I think the, um, the FDA said that they have to label for added sugars now. Uh, in other words, there's sugars naturally present because you put some apples and whatever it is. But the, the, the number of sugars that you just have added uh, have to be broken out uh, separately. When you, when you see those numbers on some products, it's pretty scary. Um, yeah, I mean, but I, you can still say, you know, whole grain, low cholesterol, heart healthy, whatever slogan you want, as long as it's not you know, an absolute, an absolute lie. And you still, you know, there's an example in the book um, of comparing a, a nutrition label or the nu nutritional content of a banana to that of an Oreo. And if you look at that, you could really think that they were very close in nutrition, <laughs> that an Oreo, eating an Oreo was not that different from eating a banana because the calorie content is similar, the sugar content is not dissimilar protein content, bananas are not super high in protein, and so on down the line. But one is absolute, like made up junk food, and the other is a natural product that's been around since the beginning of time. So we're not in this particular variant, but but close. So um, it just sort of, you know, to go back to your first question, in a way, it's about reductionism. It's about trying to reduce things to their least common denominators and trying to reduce things to their components instead of saying, well, banana is obviously a piece of food and an Oreo is obviously some weird concoction masquerading as a piece of food. We don't care about the analysis that says they're similar. It's obvious that they have fundamental differences. Speaking of the beginning of time, let's go back to the beginning of time for a second, because you, <laughs> okay, you, sure. you do in your book, you go back before the beginning of time in a way. So, and, and one of the fundamental arguments that you make at the beginning of the book is that there's this kind of Edenic fall when we can, when we as a species convert from hunter gatherers to farmers, that at that point, 
right away socioeconomic disparities and slavery and you know all the way you know from there all the way through Earl Butts and 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 Fruit Loops like all kinds of really bad things that are going to happen start simply because we've suddenly decided we can realized that we can tame land we think to our advantage you should say a little bit more about that though well so we came down from the trees and as a result of coming down from the trees and and walking erect we could see further and we could travel further and we could hunt better and there's this the last word on very little of this is in because there's no written evidence obviously and it's all archaeological but it seems that that by improving our diet, our brains grew bigger, and by our brains growing bigger, we were able to improve our diet further. And that went on for quite a while, let's say a couple hundred thousand years. And um, as a result, there were more and more people, and there was a little bit of, uh, there was still enough land for people, but some figured out that it might be easier to plant things and watch them grow or to domesticate animals and help them breed and take advantage of their presence than to just gather and hunt and forage. And so population centers began and, and this was the beginning of agriculture, but the problems that arose, and of course everybody, I don't know if everybody would agree, but many people would have agreed, well, if I could have plants right outside my door I mean, if I could have a door and I could have plants outside it, that would be a lot easier than just roaming around looking for food all the time. And so agriculture began. And um, this isn't an original uh, argument by me that was first and probably best made by Jared Diamond, but who, who called agriculture something like the greatest mistake in the history of the human race. So at the end of the last ice age, about 10,000 years ago, when agriculture began to become, let's say, popular, it turned out that there were problems with this. There were problems of malnutrition, because if you only grow what's best in your neighborhood, then you're only growing one or two things, and therefore you're only eating one or two things. So your diet is much less varied than it was when you were a hunter-gatherer. If you have animals living around, you may have animals living inside with you or very close proximity to you, and animals are great spreaders of diseases. If you have more children, as farmers tend to do, um, because they want the free labor, whereas for foragers and hunter-gatherers, they want fewer children. Farmers wanted more children. Then there's less food to go around. There's less breast milk to go around. So early childhood nutrition is an issue, and so on. So there were benefits of agriculture to be sure but there were also big problems with it but as it happens agriculture was a huge population growth promoter and there was no going back there was at no point could people say or would people have said because after a few generations people lost the skills to forage and to hunt and to gather but at no point would anyone have said oh agriculture this was a bad idea let's go backwards because History doesn't really move backwards that way.
No. Uh, yeah, and, and as you point out, you've all know Harari in his book Sapiens and calls it the greatest fraud. Right. <laughs> Switching over to agriculture. I mean, I should say, just by way of, you know, cards on the table, uh, I have a high Neanderthal DNA. I'm a Neanderthal activist. My feeling is the minute we let you people get in charge of stuff, it's just started <laughs> a, a hell in a handbasket. All right, we have to take a really quick break. We're going to, this will be a fast break. You could maybe eat a banana during this break. Don't eat an Oreo. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Our guest is Mark Bittman. Uh, his book is Animal, Vegetable, Junk, A History of Food, From Sustainable to Suicidal. Um, so because our time is limited, I want to I get into one of the things that I, I, I was educated about a lot more by your book. I don't think I, first of all, quite understood how accomplished, how, how multiply accomplished, for example, George Washington Carver was, this kind of almost plant whisperer, you know, could figure out all mm-hmm. kinds, solve all kinds of agricultural uh, problems. Uh, the role of Fannie Lou Hamer about who I knew embarrassingly and shockingly little. But there's, just as we've been through uh, this we're going through this pandemic, which has exposed these terrible disparities uh, 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 in terms of health outcomes based on race. Well, we we knew that some of the seeds were there for all kinds of reasons because of food deserts and food apartheid and this this kind of whole sense that one of the things that operates on two or three or four tiers is in fact food and nutrition and uh, people of color are often on the losing end of that proposition. Maybe you could just sketch out a little bit uh, of, of what the book tells us. Um, I mean, it's worse than, it's worse than white people mostly imagine because we're not taught about this. And, and, um, I, you know, I learned so much in researching and writing this and it really became not the thorniest part of the book, but perhaps the most exciting and the part that I went over and over and over to make sure that I got right. But, you know, obviously the, the kidnapping of, Africans to do our agriculture and build the wealth of the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries was crime enough. But even after 
the United States, and I hesitate to say we, even after the United States recognized that this was an issue or a problem and abolished slavery, um, which, you know, there's some credit for that. And, and um, at the same time, the U.S. was busy stealing land from and eradicating indigenous Americans and then giving that land almost exclusively to white men. And that was the, the kind of post-Civil War story was the Homestead Act, which actually began during the Civil War, which again, formed the foundation of wealth in the 20th century by giving land, again, almost exclusively to white men. So when you, when you wonder why there are so few black farmers, when you wonder why so little land is owned by black people, it goes back to official U.S. policy that's 165 years old. Um, and, and you just kind of unpack that and you find so many problems. I mean, you talk about systemic racism. You think about what that means. It means that the system is racist. And that, you know, that, of course, slavery was a, a fundamental, it's been described as America's original sin. But the stuff that happened after we abolished slavery was was almost as bad and lingers just as just as terribly. So I think the other part, of, and one of the many other parts of this is, um, and if we have time, maybe we can pivot back to Fannie Lou Hamer because that's an amazing story, and I just didn't yeah. know anything, anything about that. But if we don't get back to it, that's another reason why you have to read Mark's book. But so I could drive five minutes from where I'm sitting right now. I'd be in Hartford's North End, and you could pretty much see what the plan, if you could call it a plan is, which is, and you've written about this, that, you know, in particular, it's already the case that, you know, there are like, what, five fast food restaurants for every supermarket in the United States, but they're also concentrated in poor areas, uh, areas dominated by people of color. Mark, in the late 1980s, I volunteered for this thing called Hartford Food System, and my job was to drive out to Simsbury to an organic farm run by an old guy, an old salt of the earth guy named George Hall, fill my stupid Toyota Tercel with everything, like like the, the collard greens would be up touching the ceiling of the car just to cram all this stuff in and bring it to the north end of Hartford where there was a little, you know, uh, farmer's market there. And people would be lined up at eight o'clock in the morning to get, you know, those fresh collards, those fresh apples, whatever, because there just wasn't a supermarket. And, you know, that was, yeah, like 89 or something. So, so what are we with 30 uh, or more years out? It hasn't changed all that much. This right. is a system that tilts bad, non-nutritious diabetes and obesity driving foods towards an underclass. And I guess, I guess I'm going to ask you another very unfair question. Why, Mark Bittman? Why? Why is this still? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's always follow the money, and the answer is because it's profitable. I think it's not, you know, I, I think racism isn't the only issue here. It is an issue. It's an important issue. But uh, the people who are targeted are, the people who are targeted with junk food are the most vulnerable people. So that, includes children also and children who are going to argue that fruit loops is real food or so so if if you're if you have enough money to buy real food if you're well educated enough to understand what's going on and can afford it and can have the time to shop for it and prepare it etc 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 you're not the target audience for junk but if you are vulnerable that is if you're 
young or you don't have money, or if you have no time and you have to eat on the run, then you are you are the target audience. And of course, the people with the least time, the people with the least money um, tend to be people of color. And it almost seemed as though there was a sort of national policy uh, dating at least as far back as the 70s, if not further back, uh, a farm policy that could kind of at the federal level could be kind of described as grow stupid. You don't have to be you don't have to farm smart, just plant stuff from hedgerow to hedgerow, fence row to fence row, you know, and we'll figure out somebody to eat who's going to eat it. We'll figure out we'll dump it. We'll turn it into fructose, whatever we have to do, and, and we'll dump it into markets where people have fewer food choices. I don't know. Am I, am I unfairly characterizing this? The only mistake you're making um, is thinking that it started in the 70s because it started okay. in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. And I think we're all people of our age and maybe people 20 years younger than us all sort of feel like, oh, the 80s farm age, small farms started to go under. We started to be dominated by agribusiness, blah, blah, blah. That's wrong. It started in the 19th century. It started with the Homestead Act, and it was really um, accelerated by World War One, when the whole thing was grow as much wheat as we can to feed our troops and to feed our allies. And that and the invention of the tractor and the the move west, all of which all and, and then, of course, the the development of chemicals, both fertilizer and pesticides, all of which just encouraged this kind of agriculture that was, you know, cash crop agriculture. Grow as much of you can as you can of the one crop that's going to grow well for you, that's going to make you the most money, and forget about everything else. Forget about its impact on earth, on the earth, on the soil. Forget about whether it's good for people or not. Forget about whether this is a long-term plan. Forget about whether this has benefit for our our country other than purely economic benefit. And and that's how things have been ever since. But you're absolutely right. It's like grow the stuff and we'll figure out what to do with it. And it goes back to one of your first questions or one of my first questions, which was what's a food system for? Is a food system a system that says grow as much as you can, we'll turn it into money, we'll use that money to figure out how to buy the food that's being produced for us or should it be, let's grow food that's good for everybody, doesn't impact the earth that much, and so on. And, and we chose the first. And, uh, I mean, one of the thing, points you make uh, towards the end of the book is the bill is really coming due for this right now. I mean, the, in the form of climate change in particular, the bill is coming due. Not caring what this does to the land is going to produce, is already producing climactic conditions that are, are in fact, going to make it harder to farm successfully. And those conditions are, in a very arguable sense, a product of a certain kind of farming. Well, climate is one thing. Um, overall, environmental impact is another thing. But, you know, when you start making the list of what the costs are of us not having the conversation that you you suggested we have at the beginning of the show, of us not saying what is food for, if we look at the costs of doing agriculture the way we're doing and eating the way we're eating, they're, they're almost it's almost too much to talk about it in, in an hour. I mean, it's 10 or 15 huge issues are directly affected by the way we grow food, produce food, process food, and eat food. 
All right. So rather than have those gigantic conversations right this very second, we are going to take a break. This time you will have – you could run and make yourself a nutritious snack or just like Julia and some carrots or something because we are going to do a little bit of uh, a short pledge break here. I do ask you before you make yourself the snack to maybe make a pledge during the time of this show. It really helps us a lot if people pledge during this time. Mark is not going away. He's going to – and here's the good news. Is the, the final segment is going to be full of hope. Because the end of Mark's book is full of hope and full of really brilliant solutions, a lot of which are taking place in places other than in the United States. But there's no reason we can't steal India's and Copenhagen's ideas. All right, we'll be back with more of Mark after this. And I pull out some Fritos corn chips, Dr. Pepper, and an old moon pie. Then I sit back in glorious expectation of a genuine junk food high. We're talking to renowned food and cooking expert Mark Bittman. But before we get back to Mark, let me just say thank you to Cat Pastor and Betsy Kaplan, who produced this episode as well. So thanks very much for all that. Uh, and thanks also if you made a pledge during that break. Try to make a pledge before 2 o'clock so we get credit for it. I know I sound, you know, very self-seeking when I say that. And that's because I am. Uh, all right. So Mark Bittman is with us. He's been a guest many times before. I've known him forever. Uh, his book uh, is Animal <laughs> Vegetable Junk, a History of Food from sustainable and uh, to suicidal. Mark and I go so far back that we had conversations about the transition from hunter-gatherer to agriculture. I, you know, I, Mark would say, I don't think this is going to work. I don't think that, I think we should go stay. I think we should <laughs> We continue. had them in Meriden, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think we should continue to hunt the dire wolf. Um, so, um, you know, there's a lot in this book that's upsetting to read about, and and it's fascinating and, and hard to put down, but it's also hard to know and think about. However, there are chapters of the book, particularly one called The Way Forward, which just talk about how, yeah, you know, I mean, what's weird, Mark, is that we've known about this stuff forever, you know? I mean, you talk about, you know, Francis Moore, Lappe, and the Helen and Scott Nearing, and like, I, I read all those books in the 70s and 80s, and West Jackson on land policy, and Wendell Berry on farming, and, you know, this stuff has been around forever. It's just a question of getting us to do it, but there are places that are doing it. Uh, and a lot of them seem to be not here. They seem to be Chile, India, Copenhagen, or at least one uh, huge metropolitan area in Brazil. So I don't know. Why don't you pick one or two of your favorites and talk about them? Okay. Um, I think they. I'm going to pick a, a state in India called Andhra Pradesh. I'm going to pick a town in, in Brazil called, I'll pronounce it wrong, but it's Belo Horizonte. Um, and they both sort of show, uh, well, let's see. So in Andhra Pradesh, the state has supported what's called zero budget national, sorry, zero, zero budget natural farming, ZBNS. And basically that means, let's say, organic farming or pesticide free farming. And there's, of course, a tradition of that in, in India. Um, India didn't really use pesticides until the so-called Green Revolution, which is another we haven't touched on that, but it's another interesting part of the book, I think. Um, but what what Andhra Pradesh is doing is this kind of, I, I guess the, it's kind of a Ponzi scheme, but in the good sense, in that a, a group of farmers who are in this program of using no pesticides uh, and growing, uh, growing a variety of crops with um, many different crops planted in a single field, um, a group of these farmers will go to a neighboring village and say, hey, we figured out a way to 
cut costs, increase yields, and stop using pesticides. And in the in the village they go to, this is how the story was told to me, and I was there, so I heard it sort of firsthand. But um, they'll go to a village with 300 farmers, and and um, four of them will say, "Oh, okay, that sounds all right." Most most people are like this interested, and of those four, like one or two will do it. And the thing is that it works. So the next year, six do it, and the next year, thirty do it, and after five years, everybody's doing it. And this thing has snowballed to the point where there are, uh, this is a big state. This is a state of 60 million people um, and and something like uh, I don't know, 12 million farmers. And there are up to a million farmers farming like this. And they anticipate that within five years, almost every farmer in the state of Andhra Pradesh is going to be farming this way. This is with government support, but it's also with local activism. Um, and that's an that's an important part is that some people are being paid to partake in this program. That is to try to convince others to join. But some are just going from village to village and saying this is the way to farm from now on. So it's important that there's government support, but it's important that there's local support, too. Um, and there's indications that that's going to go national. There's a couple of other states that are talking about doing it and the federal government's talking about doing it too, although at the moment it's not the most progressive government in the world in India. So that takes us to Brazil, which kind of proves the point because in the 20 years ago in this town city, sixth biggest city in Brazil called Belo Horizonte, there was a local food movement and the local food movement basically became national. And what happened was um, big numbers of uh, organic farms were started. Land was redistributed. As much land was was um, given away in this period of land reform as had been in the entire history of the country. Farm to school became the norm. Uh, farm to table became the norm. There were farmers markets everywhere. There were a thousand, um, no, forgive me, a hundred of these people's restaurants, restaurants where anyone could go in any time of day and get a meal that they could afford. It was serving 100,000 people a day. Um, organic growing was encouraged. Uh, local production and local purchasing was encouraged on and on and on, sort of everything that you might wanna see. All of this was dismantled. This All of this came from, from community pressure and because that community pressure kind of dissolved, when Bolsonaro became president, much of this has been dismantled. So um, my point is that change has to come from the bottom up. And when I say bottom, I just mean groups of people, ordinary people like us, and from the top down. And when I say that, I mean with government support. So the demands have to come, the organizing has to come, from farmers, from eaters, and so on. But the support has to come in the form of funding and organizing from government. So there really needs to be a change in sort of both ways for this to work well. Yeah, and I think also another piece of this, uh, particularly I think in the case of Andhra Pradesh, 
you know, it's got to make sense to the farmers too. So, I mean, one of the things they're saying to the farmers is, why are you spending all this money on fertilizer when we've got cows who produce fertilizer? Um, in right. other words, there's nutrients here on the farm. This this isn't going to cost you. It's not going to cost you. Won't cost you more to farm the right way. It might cost you less, and at best, it's just sort of a zero change. It's just sort of a a wash item to to change these things. To me. I mean, farmers are always feeling as though, feeling the pinch. They're always feeling as though they're barely making it. Making it. So you can't go to right. them and say, "We want you to do something that's going to cost more." Right. But you know, in this country, we subsidize people to farm uh, by doing monocropping. That is, by growing soy or corn or wheat and nothing else. By using chemicals, um, chemicals that are damaging to the crops, the environment, to public health, blah blah blah. Um, and to sell into a market that really is geared to buy that one crop. Like if you're not growing corn or soybeans in Iowa, you have trouble selling your crop. So the whole system, not just the subsidies, but the whole system incentivizes farmers to grow the stuff that's being, that the system wants, which is soybeans, corn, and so on. That's to change that is not a simple matter of going up to the farmer and saying, hey, we have a better way. You have to change an entire system of doing things, let's say, wrong. Right, and and um, it is amazing what is accomplishable in some of these places. I mean, Chile. You talk about Chile's labeling system, where they started putting black labels on these on these foods that really are not very right. healthy. No Fruit Loops in Chile. I yeah, mean, no, no Tony the Tiger. He's dead. Right. So, but I'm also wondering here, here in the United States, you, ha you have some examples here. And, and I think, you know, Betsy Kaplan, uh, who's slacking me right now, is raising a good point. I mean, these things that you're describing, they're really important. Uh, they're really valuable. They should be happening everywhere. But some of them are a pretty big lift, and they're pretty comprehensive and multi-pronged. Uh, here in the United States, you've looked at a couple of things that seem to maybe be a little bit easier to accomplish. I, I don't know. You, you want to pick one out? Um. What what was Betsy thinking about? I think Give she's thinking clue. she's thinking about she's thinking about Detroit, but uh, but you do you, right? Well, um, you know the promising things in the states are I think, and and we see a lot of this in the Northeast, so maybe it's easy to talk about. But but CSAs community supported agriculture, where uh, people near farms basically give farmers an advance on the crop so that they're guaranteed a share in the next season's crop. Those have become increasingly popular and, and basically next year's shares in most CSAs, I think, are sold out because once the pandemic started, everybody wanted local food. Um, we've seen some some good advances in uh, municipal purchases of food. So there's a thing called Good Food Purchasing Program, which began in Los Angeles that basically stipulates what kind of food different city agencies can buy. So it'll be this percentage of local, this percentage of organic, workers have to be treated right, pesticides have to be reduced, and so on down the line. We're seeing that. We're seeing, you brought up Detroit, we're seeing urban farms throughout a lot of the country, and urban farms are not so much about believing that we're going to produce a great deal of our food within cities or even right next to cities, but in showing people where food comes from, what it really takes to grow food, and to begin the kind of organizing that I was talking about when I was talking about improving food systems and the way it's happening in Andhra Pradesh and 
and has happened in Brazil. It is, you know, it's interesting. We only have just a few minutes left here, but the the pandemic has been interesting in just exposing a lot of things about our food system, including, I mean, for all of us, it's changed things, right? I can't just suddenly decide I'm going to go down to Big Y and get some manzanilla olives for some recipe I read in a Mark Bittman book or something. It's a big deal now for me to do that, you know? Um, right. it's, it's like, not, I'm not going just for the olives. I'm going, I'm going to buy 10 days worth of food if I'm going to put my, put myself into the, the supermarket. So there's that. And then there's the other part of this. And you do write in the book about, you know, sort of how food is delivered to colleges and, and, and to schools. And when the schools started shutting down, the milk suppliers I mean, there was a supply chain problem because the milk was not in a form that you could easily transform into buyable stuff or deliverable stuff anywhere else. It was, you know, on the, you know, they were selling eggs in a lots of allotments of 72 is like the smallest one. There's a way in which the, the whole pandemic showed us that it, it's a, it's a weirdly difficult to rescale food delivery system. Well, I think the system is fragile and we don't see that. But when we see breaks in it, they're really frightening. And um, and if we built the strength of regional food systems, and I'm not t- talking so much about being a locavore, I'm talking about building, shortening supply chains and building it so that the Northeast is seen as a region and where do, where does the Northeast get its food from? A lot of it comes from the Northeast. And so we can be much more resilient to climate shocks, to economic shocks, to pandemic shocks, and so on, because we're used to transporting things 100 miles or two instead of 1,000 or 10,000 miles. Right. And I will say, I mean, just once again, on a hopeful, hopeful note, you know, we've gotten better. I mean, I think there was a time not too many years ago where at this time of year, it'd be pretty hard to go into the supermarket and buy some lettuce that was grown anywhere near Hartford, Connecticut. But like, I can do that now. You know, I can I can go in and buy lettuce that was grown in Massachusetts um, hydroponically or, or, or whatever. Um, so just kind of cutting down even those distances is, uh, is a sign of hope. Well, Mark, my last question, we only have two minutes left. You know, you've been thinking about this stuff for a long time, but writing this book, I don't know, are you either eating, cooking, thinking uh, even more differently than you have over all these decades? Um, Thinking, yes, because I think the I think the most important thing about this book is to try to get people to take food seriously. When I started writing and I mean, you know exactly when that was, Mm -hmm. um, but it's 40 years ago. And when I started writing, I was writing about the fun of cooking and the, the great joys of eating in restaurants and traveling and eating different food and da 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 And that stuff's, you know, really important. It's one of the great things about being alive. But and and it's become increasingly it's become increasingly popular. But food is so much bigger than that, in that food is not only key to life, which is obvious, but the way that we handle food determines so many other things. And and by taking food seriously, we take society seriously. We by trying to fix food, we can try to fix so many other things. And that's really where my thinking is going. And that's right. And, and the book does such a yeah. book. Yeah. The book does such a great job of making that argument. We have to stop now. Uh, we once again have a little pledge break coming up. If you enjoyed this conversation, want to hear more of them, uh, like the conversation we just had with Mark Bittman about animal vegetable junk, a history of food from sustainable to suicidal, then you should make a pledge right now. So we'll get credit for it. 
Great to talk to Mark again. We both learned uh, to write from Sumerians. That's how long we've been writing. All that meat and no potatoes just ain't right like green tomatoes. Now, woman, I'm steaming and I'm really screaming. It ain't rational. All that meat and no potatoes.